Today on Blind Insights, Stephen Hale challenges me to work out what I would do if I was Prime Minister. Can you imagine voting for me? Can you imagine letting me pick the mission? Can you imagine letting me pick the goals? Well, what we are going to talk about, other than that, is a wonderful book by Mariana Mazzucato called Mission Economy. Today on Blind Insights. I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very good, thank you. I have my big pink coffee. That's good. Well, back to the pink coffees, which is always a, a, a reliable start to your day. We can be assured that you're going to be articulate and energetic. Well, I suppose the thing I don't know is if is if the coffee is also pink. Mm, I'll never let. You, I'll never tell you. Oh, okay. Gee, thanks. <laughs> We're also joined with a very special guest, a, a returning expert. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Stephen Hale. Oh, thanks. Thanks for asking me, Tim. And uh, hello, David. Greetings. And you're not just a very special guest. You are our international man of mystery and economics. Oh, well, that, that <laughs> I'll put that down in my resume. Yeah, yeah. But we figure we've got a person who's international in mystery for each really important thing. Uh, yeah. So what's that old saying about a jack of all trades and master, master of none? none. Yeah. That's my entire that's life. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> nice to be here again. That's good, as long as it's a pleasant experience. Yeah. So today we are going to revisit Mariana Mazzucato and talk about her new book, Mission Economy, which I really enjoyed reading because it combines so many of the ideas from the value of everything and the entrepreneurial state. It's like it took all the really important bits of both and made them clearer and linked and gave examples of how to do everything. So it's both really interesting and really practical. And I just sort of found the whole thing interesting and useful. So I don't know if you think there's a right way into it to help people understand it better because I just had fun and ended up listening to it twice because I enjoyed it so much. I'm not sure what the best uh, route into it is. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. I also think over time... She's obviously spending a lot of time talking to her friends, Kate Raworth and Stephanie Kelton. Yeah, And this that's book very goes obvious. very well with their books. Well, I suppose a thing, so now you've said that, so I don't forget it. In the final chapter or the conclusion, right near the end, there's a list of all these sort of amazing current female economists and their major current book. Were you familiar with all those books and are all of them worth reading or is there a particular order in which they should be read or some of them were new to you too um i can't remember all of them off the okay because that's, yeah, that's my point there was, Perez, yeah, was, uh, there was eight or nine books there yeah. and i'm like whoa i'm i'm sure not all of these are going to be available as audiobooks some of these i would have to get as kindle and that's going to make the listen a bit harder and longer because it's synthetic voice rather than a human so i was like do i do this or do i just be very happy that mariana has essentially taken the bits she needed to reinforce her argument and go, I've probably got what I need for the moment. Um, there are some terrific books there. The most important ones I think you've uh, probably already read. Carl- okay. Carlotta Perez is yep. interesting as well. And I'm just trying to get my 58-year-old brain to remember the name of the not all that long ago um, <laughs> deceased Nobel Prize winning woman who um, uh, contradicted the standards neoclassical economic story of the tragedy of the commons. This is Tim from the Editing Den. Stephen Hales just told me that the lady he was trying to remember is Eleanor Ostrom, who received the 2009 Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences for her groundbreaking research demonstrating that ordinary people are capable of creating rules and institutions that allow for the sustainable and equitable management of shared resources, in direct contention with the tragedy of commons. Um, oh, I can't. Yeah, right. I thought <laughs> tragedy of commons was like millennia old. The tragedy of the commons is is a very old story in economics, but it's basically just a way of uh, justifying having private ownership of everything. Awesome. Okay. And there was never any empirical evidence behind that argument. No, it was an ideological yeah. argument yeah. like neoliberal economics. It started with an ideology and then we got a theory to bring it into the world. So maybe I'll start with what I think is a little summary of the book uh, 
so people know, you know, if they want to go buy the book first and then listen to the episode or listen to the episode and then buy the book or whatever way around. To me, the wonderful thing about the book is if you're as old as Stephen and I, you remember the mixed economy. You remember a combination of the state being very busy doing important things and business being very busy doing important things and there being an uneasy balance. And that as we went into the late 70s, early 80s, that uneasy balance collapsed as we got to the neoliberal world where the state was told to shut up and get in its box and not be properly involved in anything anymore, which has largely been catastrophic for the world. What Mazzucato is really suggesting is let's take everything we've learnt historically about the mixed economy, let's take all the new insights we have about different bits of the economy and in a sense do mixed economy 2.0. But instead of doing it by accident this time, And I think it was really accident the first time because really the New Deal in America and then the World War II economy and then the post-World War II US economy, particularly the defense economy, were all things that we just fell into having to get them done. The world just did them. With the great advantage now, we've got all the history on the mixed economy. We also know where it went wrong. We also know how neoliberalism undermined it. And we also know now so much more thanks to behavioural economics and other areas, about how people actually think and behave and how they want to be and what they want to be a part of, to then come up with a mixed economy where the state does the things it's best suited for, business does the things it's best suited for, and when we create partnerships between the two, it's not the kind of horrible 1990s Tony Blair public-private partnerships which are, hi, neoliberalism is awesome, let's make the state subservient to companies who don't care. Instead, it's an opportunity to build genuine partnerships that are both socially you know, beneficial, you know, environmentally beneficial, if that's something we want to value, and I think most of us now do, and you know, good for the economy in the long run. Stephen, is that a sort of okay summary? I think that's a terrific summary. Um, How we got to post-Second World War mixed economy capitalism, of course, was through going through uh, two world wars, a Great Depression, and a global pandemic. Um, So Spanish (laughs) flu, so really Spanish flu has a big impact on all that too? I think it had a huge impact. Okay, we need to find a historian on that because I'm always interested, but I wouldn't have known that that had a direct economic impact. I thought it was sort of World War one, the end of the gold standard in some countries, rolling into the Depression, but I've got to add the Spanish flu in. Okay. Um, and we have to hope that we can make a transition back to a, uh, as you were saying, a more modern form of mixed economy capitalism where we learn from um, not just what's gone wrong since the 1980s, but what wasn't entirely right in the 1970s, not that we have the same problems now mm. that they had uh, then. Because when you talk about the government playing a more active role in uh, the economy and uh, pursuing a, a mission and uh, being involved in in influencing the direction that capitalism takes over time, people think back to the 70s and governments trying to prop up failing and it's not that, that, and that's what's so powerful in the yes, book. Absolutely. This is not about propping up legacy industry. This is about doing blue sky research to achieve major valuable social, you know, environmental missions. So the sort of part of the title and the classic example is the Apollo program in the United States, putting the first humans on the moon. The amount of blue sky science that had to be done, the amount of money that had to be spent to achieve that blue sky science. And there was no sense that the government in the US was ever going to be the ones deliberately commercialising this. Their argument was, if we push so hard, and we push because we can take the risks, we can risk the money, we can risk the time, we can call the resources in, we can pay for the resources, all the things a company can't do, that if we can achieve this, so many technologies will have been created and as a consequence, the flow on to the private economy will be immense, which is exactly what we have seen. Our modern tech sector is a direct consequence of space and defence spending in the 1960s. So Google, Apple, Microsoft have done astounding things at taking other people's work and making huge profits for themselves. 
Absolutely, as 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 Mariana explained in the book before last in the entrepreneurial state. Yes, and mm. uh, just imagine JFK's speech at the beginning of the nineteen sixties. That's that's so much ancient in back in ancient history that it's uh, it's before I was even born. Yeah, it's now too old. <laughs> like, do you just remember the moon landing? Just. I remember seeing the moon landing on a little uh, black and white TV. Yeah, I okay. was uh, six years old. Yeah, I thought at you, the time. when I was thinking about when I was reading it, when you were thinking about doing this, I thought, oh well, you must have like literally just just have started primary school or something. So maybe you could just remember this amazing moment. I can remember. Yes, it, it yeah. was an amazing moment, and I can't really think of a moment since which has captivated the whole world. Yeah, in the same way, and because we're now so far from that, we really, again, I'm born in 1971, so you know I've got, well, I think by the time I'm born, was there one more landing on the moon in 72? I think it's the last one. Mm. So the point is, we haven't done anything truly wow with this idea of a major mission for an economy since that point. Yeah, I, I don't think we should f- focus overly much on that particular mission. In itself, but the no, ambition of it and yeah. the vision and uh, a, a, a politician standing up and uh, and saying we've got this wicked problem that we are going to solve and I'm not entirely sure how we're going to solve it yet, but we're going to solve it over the next decade. It's going to cost a lot of money. We're going to invest that money. Uh, and then what happened from from there on in, really? It involved, as Mariana explained, obviously taking a lot of risks, being uh, innovative in terms of how the competence of the organization of NASA was developed over time to allow them to to allow them to uh, carry out the the mission. Um, uh, and the way they dealt with their interactions with uh, private sector organisations mm. as well, the way all that was, was managed, not putting all your eggs in, in one basket, learning from mistakes. The really important thing, it seems to me, was we're so used to hearing that government should be transparent and accountable, that public service should be transparent and accountable. But what becomes clear with the example of the Apollo program is it, should also take risks. And the reason it can take risks is because the people making decisions are genuinely experts. Absolutely. And that really goes back to... Um, it, it goes back to us having discussed previously the evolution of neoliberalism over time and all the myths that that's been based on, which people take for granted now. Yeah. The previous book when we were talking about value creation, the idea that value is created um, by um, risk-taking entrepreneurs in the private sector and uh, all the government can ever do is uh, uh, um, redistribute what's been created or destroy value. The idea that governments um, should be narrow in terms of what they focus on and should be run as a business so that you don't have students in universities, for example, their customers... Uh, you don't have patients in hospitals, they're customers of clients. clients. Yeah. Uh, the idea that the government's finances should be run the way a household's finances Yeah, I like run. the fact she's more upfront in this book about putting a little bit of MMT late in the book, of making it clear there is a way out here to explain how to do all this, and it really links to Kennedy, who had an idea what it might cost, and he got told by someone very senior at NASA, expect it to cost at least twice as much. And it did. And even though Kennedy died, none of the presidents after shied away from continuing the project. So there was an understanding that the state is the only investor. And you know, Mariana talks about the point that they should be the first investor in risky things that are going to add so much to society. Because they're the only ones who can bring the resources together and fund it you know, to the level that is needed. Well, absolutely, and it just goes completely against what's sometimes called modern public management mm. theory now, which Marianne also mentions in the book, the idea that 
um, the mythical free and competitive market yeah, is, ha, the, ha. is the ideal and governments should only intervene at all and then reluctantly when they identify obvious market failures such as externalities and even then the public choice theorists uh, as they are laughably called uh, um, persuaded everybody in the late 70s and early 1980s that government failures are often much or generally worse than market failures so the presumption should be actually not to uh, um, not to intervene or only to intervene yeah. where the benefits of doing so are so obvious and enormous that um, government incompetence won't won't make things worse rather than better and that's what leads you to um, the, the the kind of society we have now where there is basically state capture Mariana often talks about the enormous growth of the deregulated finance sector and I, I saw Tim on Twitter today or yesterday talking about uh, property prices rising and some of that is indeed to do with demand and supply which which Tim was talking about but a lot of it is actually based on just deregulating finance and directing banks into mortgage lending so they've become dependent on uh, on uh, the property market yeah, there is no other activity so it's what they do and if if we're all competing for houses then the you know the, the uh, price of a house will go up to the maximum amount the banks will lend people <laughs> the mm. more you deregulate them the mm. more upward pressure there'll be on on prices and shareholder capitalism as well the idea that of course friedman was pushing in the 60s and 70s that it is the job uh, 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 the narrow job of the directors of companies is to maximize shareholder wealth mm. in the short term and not to have any more mm. general societal uh, view of what their role should be than that so it's shareholder capitalism rather than stakeholder capitalism mm. and as mariana quotes a, a conservative politician in the uk is saying in in the book what you end up with is infantilized government where uh, everything is contracted out where whenever you have a problem to deal with, you look around for which team of management consultants from which accountancy <laughs> firm yeah. you can pay an enormous amount of money to come <laughs> and do a PowerPoint slide presentation. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you end up buying into all sorts of contracts that you call public-private partnerships where the res risks are actually kept in the public sector, but the profits go into the private sector you end up paying over the odds for things which uh, were uh, often not worth doing well the wonderful in the example place. in the book of the uk wanting a medical management system for the nhs 10-year contract blew out by multiple hundred percent they ended up giving it back to the public service and they developed a product in six weeks well, yeah, and the, the, the problem with giving these things out in the first place is, of course, you've got public servants there now, or you don't have the, you, you don't have the expertise you lose in capacity. the public service now. So and you lose not. capacity that can be surged. So we're seeing that around the world at the moment where most countries cannot vaccinate people at the rate the vaccines are arriving. And it's simply there is no capacity with in the public service to do it. And because most companies are also so lean... They, unless they've got spare capacity, which they normally don't, can't really help much more because they were already obliged to be working on other things. So we're seeing multiple places where the stockpile of vaccine is going up because they can't jab people fast enough. Mm. It's ridiculous. Well, and to deal with this and so many other um, uh, missions or, or goals, I suppose, mm. which would part of a, 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 the mission that a purposeful government should have, as Mariana says, uh, it's important to develop capabilities over time within the government. Yeah, and maintain those capabilities yeah. on those things that are saying, well, we might need to do a new thing in a while. Let's have some of the capability giving it a try now because that way we'll know how it works. This is part of the point of government spending is sovereign capability. Mm. What are we going to be capable of later? And I love her choice of language where she talks about, you know, government's role is to shape markets. And it's such a good word. It's not to intervene in them. Because if you've shaped them reasonably well, they probably can work within the guidelines and the rules that you've given them. But if you need to, don't be afraid. Why else do we elect representatives? Why else do we have a public service doing oversight of how things run unless we want to make the world a better place? What's the point otherwise? Absolutely. Uh, um, we need uh, leadership from uh, within the government. 
in terms of deciding what goals ought to be set over time, of course they should uh, they should consult the community generally. But they also we need a little bit of uh, is the right word evangelism. As oh, absolutely, well. <laughs> yeah. you've got to rah rah people up. <laughs> you do absolutely, and I'll, I'll make it blunt of that. Get your shit together, humans. Hmm. That, that's more to the point. Um, so, what are our, our wicked problems that we're faced with at the moment? Obviously, climate change, and I note that uh, um, carbon emissions in December 2020 were higher globally than they were in December 2019. Really, despite the because everyone was locked inside. Well, and uh, economies like China were back growing, pumping everything again, out again, pumping everything yeah. out again. Uh, emissions across the whole year were five to six percent below 2019, but okay. month on month, December 2020 was terrible. Was 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 worse yeah. as far as emissions were concerned than 2019. But that's wow. of course only one of the ecological challenges we face. People are going to be talking more and more if they're not already about biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then there's all the other things which are in Kate Rowe's book and they're in Stephanie Kelton's yeah, book Yeah, all too. these books are now linked and that's the real power of Mariana's book. So if you can really only read one book on economics, that's all the economics you can stand. This is probably the one that would allow you to engage in more debates about what you want your politicians to know and what you want them to do. So really to do another bit of a summary, the aim in the book in a lot of ways is to go, all right, what are these missions that we need to achieve? What are the environmental missions what are the social missions and once you've got your mission then you can work out the goals under them and then each goal can be tackled on its own so one of the examples throughout the book is the sustainable development goals Mm. because they already exist and they would solve problems across the world for the majority of people and for the majority of the environment if all governments came up with missions that those goals fit under and worked on those goals you'd get such both a continuity of effort, but you would get different approaches to work on the same thing, which would probably be really beneficial. Mm. And the other side of this, and the real difference between the example of the Apollo program, is the extent to which Mariana is talking about engaging with community and making sure that you're onboarding your community. Because part of having this more empowered state is having a population who are more empowered to support it, negotiate with it, engage with it, participate with maybe not shaping the missions but certainly shaping the direction of the goals and we're probably not in the position yet where direct democracy would allow us to work out what the missions should be we'd spend too much time squabbling Mm. but we can do plenty of stuff at a social level to go well okay if these are the goals that are part of the improve the environment mission which ones could we get the community immediately involved in Mm -hmm. which ones do we need their insight in if we want to do these three things with the environment you know which do we do first you know the ocean inland waterways or forests well maybe we need to let the population have a say in this because if they're more committed they will understand that this is a case of having to generate new money to pay for real resources to achieve public goods it will take up a lot of time and effort and the outcome's really valuable but part of this idea of the mission having goals and then community engagement is you start moving the general populace from the bizarre ideas we've been given by neoliberal economists and neoliberal politicians and to start understanding again what their government can do and what they can do with their government to make a better world. So part of this is not just getting the mission done. Part of the mission is to re-educate everyone at every level of what is possible and that you have to take some responsibility for playing some part in it. Mm. Absolutely. And it does. it's not just those huge long-term goals as well that this is going to influence. If you've got this mindset, you'll, you'll perhaps react differently to the Aged Care Royal Commission. Yeah, see, with all the things that came out with that yesterday, and you know, everyone, if you're listening to this in a week's time, this is the day after the Royal Commission mm. on Aged Care came out. And, you know, sitting there listening to the media covering going, it's really freaking simple. Create new money, make sure people get paid properly, make sure good people work in the industry, increase the number of people who work in the industry relative to the number of people in care and be done with it. And um, there needs to be some kind of regulation of the 
extent to which that new money is siphoned off in profit from the companies that... Mm. Well, again, that can be part of the contracts, yeah. is mm. you know, in the main, you're going to get to make money, but you're not going to get to become a millionaire out of this. If you want to be a millionaire, go speculate on the stock market. Don't rip 90-year-olds off. Absolutely, yeah. I, I, um, and uh, I don't know what the best approach to um, the aged care issue and the disgraceful way that we, we've um, dealt with that over time actually is. I do know that aged care is actually part of the health system because not all old people end up in aged care. Yeah. It's got something to do with health. So it shouldn't be... That's, that's an initial thought that I, I, I've heard other people saying and uh, it should be seen as part of the health care sector. This is part of this thing where we can almost show the example of, of how the book works. Mm. So if we said that improving you know, aged care, what's it like to be old in Australia, is the mission, then we could have multiple goals. You know, one goal would be how can people stay in their home with more support? Mm. Another goal could be how do we make aged care facilities infinitely better? And another goal would be is it medical or is it also social and is it also societal? So there could be at least three different goals, a medical goal, a social goal, and a social connectedness goal where loneliness is such a critical issue to well-being. So even in this single mission, just in a minute here, I've come up with at least five and I'm guessing if we all got involved, we can probably turn it into ten. Yes, and and uh, it may have there may be a technological yeah. aspect. To yeah, it w- would well. would we agree on exactly what mission that would be? Well, Is the mission would be to improve aged care mm. in Australia because right. the mission can be very broad. That's the point of in the book having the goals below it. The mission needs to be something that people can just have in their head so easily. And then they can go down the list of the goals and go, well, which one am I interested in or matters to me or does my expertise align with? I'm not familiar enough with, I didn't read the report or much of the news about it, honestly. Was there uh, lower socioeconomic aged care facilities more disproportionately affected than, I don't know, do do rich people even go into... Chemical restraint and violence were normal across the system. The whole thing. System failed. Okay. So it's not it's not really a, a like a wealth issue is basically well, it, what I'm it, asking. Everything's a wealth issue, okay. but it was bad either way. I see. <laughs> there's problems with the lack of staff. There's yeah. problems with a lack of the staff being very poorly paid. Mm. Right. There's problems with a lack of training. Yeah. Lack of expertise, but facilities as well. I think the goal there should be to agree on a minimum set of standards which have to be applied in order for people mm. to be able to... So a bit to like the Sustainable Development Goals, you actually have some overarching minimum standards, minimum qualifications, and go, until we get to there, let's get that far first. Right. But in the case of sort of the blue sky side, which is always a part of the mission examples that Mariana gives, in aged care it will be something like, well, how do you deal with loneliness? How do you mm. use technology in a simple way so that an 85-year-old can talk to the friend they can't go see anymore? It's all well and good to say give them an iPhone and they'll use Zoom. No, that's two steps too complicated You know, if a brain is not working right anymore. So the blue sky side of this could be human-machine interface. The blue sky side of this could be going, a lot of people probably need a little robot wandering around the house to look if they haven't eaten, if they've fallen down, or they haven't had a shower for two days, and to report in. Now, that's not really a big stretch in robotics, but it's a bit blue sky. It needs to be a bit more advanced than now and, and affordable. So there's opportunities here both to combine amazing opportunities for science organisations and universities to be getting money to deal with these blue sky ideas. And once they find solutions, commercialising them through companies and through you know advanced manufacturing or whatever else. So you, you deal with this in multiple ways, as well as the job potentially for a whole bunch of people to be the people who set these robots up, train them to work in their environment, you know, tweak them, make them work better. So each of these things could have a blue sky angle, a, a you know, practical manufacturing angle, a practical service industry angle, and then all this ties into the other aspects, the social, the societal, the health. So what we're talking about here is all of these missions end up being highly integrated across all of society, which means the capacity for them to be transformative in how people see what society can do and how they see their own role in society. 
So whereas Marianne is talking about in the title of, you know, how do we change capitalism? Well, the big thing about this book is you change capitalism by changing how empowered people are within the public service, you know, with how much more government's allowed to do, how much more appetite for risk the population learns. It's okay for government to take risks to achieve good things. There's no problem if they fail. If we don't have dead bodies and we don't waste huge amounts of physical resources, where's the problem with small fails along the way as we learn to do things better? During the Apollo program, huge amounts of shit blew up. That's what happens when you're trying to go to the moon. And uh, if you're a, if you're an investor, if you're a, a, a um, venture capitalist, then you'll engage in um, many investments that don't pay off for every investment that pays off big time. And uh, as Marianne has said in, in other books before, the state is uh, is better placed than any other investor to bear risks. Yeah, they have to be the investor, of first, what was the investor of first choice. I think that's a little yeah, phrase. And, and to make lots of small bets and, yeah. uh, and is, is in a... Even when they claim that they are uh, setting a level playing field and not involved in the economy, they in fact are, but they they are in a way which just reflects state capture. Yeah, as opposed to societal benefit. So why do we have such a big finance sector today? We have a big finance sector because it's been created. It's been created by governments which... uh, would have told you that they didn't want to favour a particular sector of the economy at all, but by the way in which finance was deregulated and then, and I'm not saying we should roll all this back now, but then compulsory private tax advantage, private superannuation came in, you created a huge industry Mm. out of nothing. Well, it was that thing when we were talking about the value of everything, you moved the productive boundary. Mm. The productive boundary was moved to put the finance sector on the productive side, where it has never been in recorded history. And the, 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 the state has immense power, of course, because, as Mariana says, first of all, through procurement, through what it buys and where it, where it buys from, uh, and the contracts it enters into. Secondly, investments. She would like there to be more equity investments so that um, people uh, can see or at least imagine that they're getting something back when investments pay off. Um, so she talks about for every Solyndra that failed in, again, just yeah. in another book, the <laughs> you've got a, a Tesla or a Yeah, but a she mentions Google. that in this book. She mentions yeah. it in both. So the US government put money into two tech firms. One was bust and they got yelled at for wasting money. Hmm. Tesla kicked bottom. The point is it was state money and we need to, well, again, listeners, you know that we understand where money comes from and most of the population don't. It was not taxpayers' money that went into a failed tech company. It was money created by the government and put in an mm. account. Mm. A digital activity, nothing more. It was real resources. Yeah. Real resources went into that company. But real resources, after, um, if you're going to learn, you have to make mistakes in order to learn. And Mariana yeah. talks about a lot about serendipity and uh, um, um, making investments with a particular goal in mind and then uh, uh, um, as a result of, of the approach that you've taken, uh, unexpected innovations and whole industries. Well, out of the space program, yeah. freeze-dried food. Can, can, I, can I slightly tangential? I know we're talking about a book I haven't read, <laughs> but I'm interested in the way that we're using the word investment and investors here. Because it's, it's sort of like the dictionary definition, right? It's not the kind of investments that Joe Blog on the street makes when he puts his money on the, on the stock market. Um, no, because we're not because determining the outcome in dollars. Right, but also it seems to be that your investment has a productive goal as opposed to a wealth. Well, part of what Mariana of- calls it in the book is she calls it outcome-based funding. What outcome right. do you want? So the question in The Value of Everything, where at the beginning of the book, she says, does value determine price? Mm. Or does price determine value? Mm-hmm. Well, here, if we see value in doing something broadly defined, socially, economically, environmentally, politically, mm-hmm. and you are a sovereign currency issuer, get on with it. Mm-hmm. And this is not Joe Bloggs who has to borrow the 500 bucks to invest and earn enough from the investment to pay back the loan and try and make a tidy profit so they can invest again. As we're talking about capitalism, reforming it, 
reconstituting it, whatever you would like to, or or, or freezing it, it. Re, yeah, let's yeah, freeze dry it and then add water, <laughs> and exactly. and minimizing the ideological um, uh, uh, presumptions, right, that you make too. So you can do things in house. The government can do things itself, or they can be done in the private sector. There's not one way necessarily of of, uh, of reaching a, a particular goal. No. Um, but if you are going to do them in the private sector, then you need enough expertise in the government sector to um, to understand what's going on, to make good right. contracts, to hold uh, private uh, institutions to account if they're not delivering. And all that was part of the Apollo mm. Program. Well, the wonderful and, thing was running on the defence model, which is if we know who's good at this, go talk to them quickly, get them to put in a document and say we could do this at this price over this time, and if you're happy with that, sign off. Hmm. Yeah. So if it's really important, it needs to be done now, this whole year idea of a one-year tendering process, and you go with the lowest bid, no. Part of the reason why getting to the moon worked is it was rarely the lowest bid, it was the best potential thing being built. So, again, this idea of, you know, in a market, the cheapest thing is the one we want. No, it's not. We want the thing that achieves the outcome we value. And if that costs more, so be it. And this applies, um, as we were saying before, right right the way across the whole uh, area of public policy. Uh, it's it, Yes, it's in terms of what direction you want, you want the economy to go in, but there are uh, other issues I could fling at David. Homelessness, for example. Yeah, but that's really that's simple because as we saw in the states that have had the guts to just pay the bill to put homeless people um, in you know, hotel rooms or little apartments, 80% of the policing problems go away, 80% of the drug use goes away. It's economically the best decision you can make is to let no one be homeless. And there are a variety of ways of, of achieving that and uh, yeah. different approaches that have been taken around the world, but it can have... You can be talking about um, the construction of uh, low-cost housing. Mm. You can be talking about um, looking at the extent to which there is uh, uh, unoccupied housing already yeah. in existence. So you can either rent some stuff for now, build some stuff for later, but this traditional idea that what you would build is ugly dog boxes 90 minutes out from the city, 25 minutes beyond the last bus or train stop because it's cheap, and that was the cheapest bid put in. If you're working on an outcome-based model, you'd go, that's stupid. Those people will be miserable. They won't be able to get a job. They won't have access to services. They will permanently end up stuck where they are. Gender equity. What do we want to do about mm. gender equity? We're one of the few countries, few high-income countries in the world that doesn't actually set targets as far as things like uh, um, uh, women's pay relative to men's pay is concerned, for example. So we've fallen down that. Mm-hmm. league table and uh, mm-hmm. um but you can it is really about as i said a, a, um a political leader having the guts to um stand up and say these are the things that we need to deal with and number one amongst them mm-hmm. of course is climate change mm-hmm. well i'm going to go back to the clean yeah. recovery forum and sort of double down on something that you know barbara rex and susan were all talking about and that is they can't put it forward unless they know we'll back them. So as much as we need good political leaders, we're only going to get them if we've actually articulated the that, mission and the goals. That goes both ways. I, I, I am going to disagree with them All right. in the sense that I was a teenager in Britain and actually that wasn't the Thatcher approach that led to neoliberalism. The Thatcher approach was, this is what I believe in, I'm going to convince you all. Mm. That's yeah, what that's she true. set out to do, and, and that's that, what she. Yeah, ideology had to come from somewhere. Yeah. So. Uh, but again, we had an ideological bunch of leaders in the transition to neoliberalism. Yeah, and we haven't had anyone with a vision since. Right. So you're saying there's not an, a, a large enough group of people who are, and there's certainly no competing vision anymore. There's only neoliberalism light. And I, and and the approach that all political parties have, mm. and I know this not exactly from the inside, but not that far from the outside, they are all obsessed. With focus groups. Yep. All of them. So unless you're going to volunteer to go to a focus group and freak them out, you're not really going to have much of an impact. Uh, that's right. And that that's something, um, again, it's something I sort of respect Bernie Sanders for. He lost, but he really wasn't interested in focus groups. No. <laughs> he said, I'm going to put forward a position. I'm going to be that rarest of things. And it kind of works in a country where potentially the presidential candidate you know, is not elected out of the parliament. 
the prime ministerial model we have, you know, guarantees, you know, you're a clone of the rest of the party. It doesn't leave any room for a leader to be radically different. I suppose, yeah, although it, uh, it has happened. Yeah, but, but less recently. and less. Again, <laughs> now that they have no career other than a political career, they start at 20 in student politics and move on. <laughs> so there's nothing before politics. Things might be changing now and attitudes amongst young people might be changing as well and there's more and more from the economics profession, from people like Mariana writing in the sort of broad Keynesian tradition mm. where economics is supposed to be about how to make life mm. better. She mm. talks about mission-oriented capitalism. We've had years when economics has been an explanation of why you can't make life yeah. better. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Really. yeah, it's the, the delusional assumption that we're all just a household. Yeah. Including states. Yeah. And interesting that, as I saw Mariana say in an interview recently, that the best, the states that have best managed the pandemic around the world, at least excluding Australia and New Zealand, who we've perhaps been helped to an extent by the fact we're so far from everywhere else, but the Vietnams of this world and even China are, are the states which have had the strongest administrative capacity that have invested. Mm. in admin within government and have been able to get themselves organised. And those that have been the closest towards the neoliberal ideal are the ones where the pandemic has been well, the UK most devastating. US. Yeah. Again, I did a podcast on this yesterday you know, with Richard Jacobs for the Finding Genius podcast and I made the point that two things have been critical in how this has been handled. Is the state still building citizens who will abide by public health rules? and to what economic model you're running on. So if you've got the combination of a population who no longer believe their liberty can be challenged for the good of public health, i.e. America, and you've got a model that says we can't spend money we don't already have in the bank or aren't about to tax, if you've got that combination like the US, you're pretty much screwed. So what would you do if you were in government, given the challenges, the short-term ones and the longer-term ones and the, that huge... Perhaps the, some people say the biggest challenge that uh, humans have ever faced, they say, uh, which is the climate change and uh, ecological sustainability challenge. You stand up and you do a JFK-type speech. How do you go about reorganising government? What? I think the first thing that is critical, and we had an interesting example of this in 2007 when Kevin Rudd became Prime Minister. And John Howard had brutalised the public service mm. for 11 years. And Kevin Rudd had a massive sort of speech in the main hall, the Great Hall, at Parliament to senior public servants. And he gave a quite remarkable speech about wanting the same kind of highly capable, speaking truth to power, public service that Hawke and Keating had enjoyed the support of in 1983, that you know, in 1983 when they came to power, the public service would go, here's 10 ideas. These five are probably most likely to work. No, that one's really probably not going to work. And then they'd do whatever they were asked to do, but they would provide really good data without the risk of being sacked for it. Whereas, of course, one of the first things John Howard did in power was crush the senior public service. So by the time Kevin Rudd gives this speech in 2007, he's giving it to a public service that are the remains that have been brutalised and they've lost most of the top people who Howard would not accept because they spoke truth to politicians. Mm. So you fundamentally have to get the public service to believe that you want them to expand their expertise, you want them to speak truth, you want them to basically behave like a well-trained military officer. Give me the truth of how bad the tactical situation is. Give me you know, the strategic options for what I can do about it. Let me decide as Prime Minister, and then as long as my order is lawful, follow it. But when I ask you again, how's my plan that I asked you to implement going, tell me truthfully. Mm. Now, where you train military officers for this from age 18 when they started ADFA, they come out of Duntroon at the earliest at 22. It's five years of teaching them to speak truth when they're asked for it, but then to follow lawful orders. And we have no equivalent in the public service. 
and the most critical thing to making this mission model work is a public service that can do both. Speak absolute truth from a position of professional expertise, which they're still reasonably capable of the professional expertise, but they've been smashed for so long, why would they risk truth? Well, there's not so many of them as there used to be. Mm, No, but we've got that whole world now too where Mm. how many skills don't we have? What capacities don't we have anymore? Mm. So in so many cases, we can manage the contract within the state, but we couldn't do the work. Mm. So there has to be a whole reconsideration of if you genuinely want sovereign capability, do you literally get back to the point of having like a reserve Australian Medical Corps where you keep people who retire at current level and you pay them a bit of extra money to stay qualified and work you know, a day a fortnight to stay switched on if we need them during a pandemic. There are so many decisions to make. So as much as you stand up and do something like a Kennedy-esque speech and you maybe define the mission in terms of when we're going to stop you know, sort of producing you know, huge amounts of carbon dioxide or a few other things you know what point are we going to have zero emissions that at least is one you could say publicly um you maybe make a few comments in different areas there's two or three missions but you already have to have in place the ability to rebuild the public service extend state capability except that you've now gone to war with the private companies that think they can buy our politicians because you're going to piss them off. So you're going to have to do politics and communicate with the population in a new way because you're going to offend most of old media by right. doing this. So, But also, you're, going to, you're not going to focus group well. How do you stop that? I don't see you well. can focus group well. If, you know, we're assuming somehow that I got into power without a coup. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have, to t- you have to, that's where you have to be inspiring and take people with you. Um, yeah. I, I, I think I don't. I don't think the focus group approach works. No, but Kennedy anyway. had a great advantage in that he made sense to a generation who'd been through shared experience. Mm. Yeah, like having been on fast boats, you know, patrol boats in World War Two, he could talk to any World War Two veteran, and they could have a conversation. Immaterial of class and education difference of being about scared out of their mind and believing they're about to die and taking the decision to light up another human with some sort of weapon system. And that people underestimate. They talk about how charming and charismatic, blah, 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 don't really care. Shared generational experience was what was massively important with him. And, you know, we look, all the data says that because Eisenhower had been the supreme commander, if he'd been allowed to have a third term, he would have beaten all other candidates. But Kennedy was the closest thing, oh. even though it was a near miss, to a credible someone who understood the same experience of war. Interesting. Whereas what we don't have now is any meaningful experience that a leader could share with a sizable enough chunk of the population. We don't have war like that. I don't know what the equivalent could be now other than most people are now afraid of change. Well, we definitely don't want a prime minister who's afraid of change. So where do we get this continuity in experience? That's a really difficult one. I, I feel to an extent that Kevin Rudd was a wasted opportunity. I yeah. think Barack Obama was a much bigger wasted, wasted opportunity. opportunity yes, because, exactly. <laughs> because the US had gone through yeah. and was going through uh, uh, an experience which affected millions of people. Yeah, like the GFC was my main argument in this podcast yesterday for why what will happen this year is – Neoliberal governments who've been doing reactionary Keynesianism will go, shit, the tax receipts have shrunk, time for austerity, and instead of fixing the digital divide that's put millions of kids behind, instead of solving multiple problems that have made the gig economy worse, have made the part-time economy worse, we will go back and do another 10 years of austerity, just like the GFC, and once again the population won't remember that historically the way we change the world is to burn bits of it down. And uh, the opposition will fall in with that because we already know that the Labour yeah. Party will be campaigning on uh, 
uh, we'll spend line. a dollar more there, we'll spend a dollar less here, and the Greens yeah. will be campaigning on we need to tax mining billionaires in order to raise money to mm. to pay for schools and hospitals. Whereas I would tell you... It strikes me that yeah. but there's many individuals in that party, take Barbara, for instance, who actually understand that that's not yeah. the but way they're to not go the about people, That's not how... That's know, not that's how political parties yeah. decide on campaigns. They have communication specialists. They Which could be me eventually at this, right? Yeah. And the communication specialists don't understand things that uh, I'm not, I don't want to talk about Barbara because I'm not embarrassed, some, but they don't understand what often individual candidates yes. do understand. But then there's a party line. Yes. And then it's very difficult to. Yeah. To, um, so it, the, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm unconvinced that, like, I, I, I love the ideas of the book. I'm unconvinced that they'll work on well, the basis that just because I think that when we had Derek on talking about hydrogen, that makes more sense because you could, you could feasibly say, you could do hydrogen make that tomorrow. argument. You could, yeah, you could do it tomorrow. You can make that argument to a neoliberal mind and it would make yeah, sense because it'd make money. it's that conscious capitalism thing of yep. doing well and doing but good. But they aren't doing it tomorrow, are they? No, well, no, well, companies are, the state isn't. <laughs> Well, but, so but, it's not happening quickly. No, no but no. You could, but if you were to make that speech, it wouldn't it wouldn't mess with a focus group as much. No, you know, that one would appeal. And I think all I was going to add to you, Tim, was I think okay, listeners, we've sort of strayed, but we really haven't, because what this book has said is that technically we know exactly what we need to do, mm-hmm. but now we need either the anthropological, sociological, or political theory argument for how to move a society to support a real leader. And we don't want to have to wait for an ecological catastrophe to create No, the we don't want Mad Max. <laughs> well, yeah, in some ways, if I can have the cool car and handgun, probably we do want Mad Max. But I don't want to live in the world where I have the cool car and the handgun and it never rains. Yeah, we don't want two world wars where we've got a pandemic, yeah. uh, <laughs> a Great Depression, and a climate breakdown. Yeah, before, so, before so really what Mariana has done, and maybe she meant to do it, is say, look, technically it's all doable. And it is the best single summary proof of that fact mm. I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Like that book says if you were a proper leader in a country that was willing to act, there is no scenario in that book that you couldn't find some guidance for how to move forward with. And some politicians, they're listening, but they're sort of listening on the edge. In the, um, so in the book, Mariana uh, talks about um, work she's done for the current British government mm-hmm. and the Horizons Project in the European Union. Yeah, but the EU came out of it interestingly because what we hear in Australia is it's a waffle fest, mm. whereas what the book gives the impression of, no, they've taken on board community engagement to such a level because they've realised without it, you have that old thing of the disconnect and when you've got the disconnect between society and the project, the project normally fails. So by trying to get the buy-in at more and more levels and make sure it resonates with people, they're upping the chance that even if they can't get a complete success, what they can get is something that people value and will value the next thing and engage with the next thing. So the European thing is the micro-pace move toward a more engaged populace which is more than we're doing and a hell of a lot more than the Americans are doing. I have a degree of optimism, which is that people are discussing these kind of ideas much more now than they were only relatively recently. And people like Mariana are becoming uh, more influential, probably more so even than Stephanie Kelton and Kate Roweth. But between them, they have got a very coherent Mm. and powerful message and every time we see if we're just talking about climate change every time we see um data on rising emissions when we need them to be falling and and goodness knows next time there's an el nino what our summertime is going to be like here in mm. australia again it just strengthens these kind of things and, and there are move there are small movements in the right direction like, like a movement towards even if it's just a nod in that direction, well-being, budgeting in New Zealand. Mm. Mm. I think we need our annual budget to be, well, you'll still be talking about the government's accounts, but much less about the government's accounts. I think um, we need a panel of indicators with targets that have been set that the government 
regularly reports on, where if they're missing a particular target at the moment, that's not a sign of uh, abject failure. It's uh, we're missing this target right now. So and we've learned check. from that. Yeah, we need to be sort yeah. of have feedback involved and be on genuine progress indicator. Yeah. Or something like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, I'm not not to be too prescriptive about no, I want Phil because I want Phil to win. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, uh, absolutely, absolutely, uh, me too. They need like a, a four horsemen name, you know, with um, Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and stuff. They had the four horsemen of the kind of atheism. They need like the, the three something of, you know, economics or politics or the new world or something. I think it's very powerful also yeah. that the leaders in this at the moment are women. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah Economics has been male-dominated for its entire history. Yeah, it might change the nature of the debate in a really And look how well moment. that turned out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and include so many more people. Yeah. yeah. But uh, this is the thing, like, we've had the big ideas over the last couple of years of what is economically possible, but we've now got more or less the beginnings of the how-to manual. Mm. And I think that is a critical point because now, like I said, we need the social sciences argument for how you motivate a modern democratic populace without going down the current American path of populism. You know, the fact that Trump stood up this week at CPAC and said, I won two presidential elections and I might win a third one. And the crowd went bananas. What? Uh. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, that's what we're actually dealing with. Yeah. Doesn't matter how good the ideas are. What we're dealing with is people that think Trump won a second presidential election. That is the degree to which the general populace is getting so many different sources of information and is so disconnected from whatever political reality is. So this is where the the next move has to be a social science move, where that social scientist can stand up with these three critically important economic books and go, here's what we do with money, here's how we manage different bits of the economy, and here's how to do missions. Now, let's work out how to get you lot motivated and pointed in the same direction. It's sort of cyclical because how many cultural or social forces are privately owned? You know, like like what, what difference could Facebook make in in changing... Yeah. Some of these narratives. Look, I, I will jump to sort of Ted Robert Gurr's idea of humans and human expectations. Mm-hmm. And what he worked out in the 70s is you get political change when both kinds of expectations are threatened. When people expect it should get better yeah, and it doesn't, they get annoyed. Mm-hmm. But when they expect it should get better and then it doesn't, then they, the expectation they hold to is I expect it shouldn't get worse. Mm-hmm. And when it does... That's when things change. Okay. Both expectations have to be broken simultaneously. That historically is the best guide for political change. Well, that speaks to uh, wealth inequality, doesn't it? Because young people are a part are that yes. category, but not not everyone is. So part historically, of that yeah, we are in a point where both expectations have been broken. They were before the pandemic, right. and the pandemic oh, yeah. has pulled even more educated young people into. No, they can't even expect it won't get worse anymore. Yeah. Because it will. Yeah. And this is the point where that means you've got the people with the brains to be supportive. You've got the people to be the courageous followers. But what we don't have is a model for where leaders to lead them come from. That's a different potential book. There's a, a, a David Graeber quote, because you know, obviously he's my favourite. Um, that was at the start of an Adam Curtis documentary I'm watching at the moment, which is incredible. Um, I uh, Can't Get You Out of My Head is what it's called. It's on YouTube if you want to find it. It was on the BBC, though. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is just something we make and could just as easily be something different. Awesome. Absolutely. Or just as easily make something different, I should say. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Yes, and that's the message of all those yeah, three books. Yeah. yeah. And the mission economy is, is the, the clear guide of this is how it was done. This is how it's going to be done again. Mm. It's all doable. You know, a bit like with Derek on talking about hydrogen. Mm. There's nothing with hydrogen now we couldn't implement. Mm. And it's the same with moving to a mission-based economy of making mixed economy 2.0 <laughs> where the first time we were bumbling, this time we know what went wrong mm-hmm. and we have more insight into more things and we have more tools to manage it more effectively and transparently. Mm. The big challenge, of course, is that neoliberalism today is much more entrenched. What's been normalised yeah. for It passes years. a pub test. That's the yeah, most that's insidious the, part yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah. And what we need is these new things 
to be able to be articulated in pubs by normal people. Yeah, that's to, right. So that there is actually a conversation in the pub. So not just the sniff test. There's actually enough understanding for a genuine conversation. And it seems that Mariana's books keep getting more and more readable. Yes, this one definitely it really is, is lovely much and readable. more readable than the yes. previous two, like um, I which still, were more academic. Yeah. Uh, and uh, 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 yeah, uh, and uh, in that respect, this is like those other two books, but you're right. I think it's more general. Yeah. It's more of a handbook in terms of how to go about doing it than The Deficit Myth or Donut Economics. Yep. The three of them, although they're, they're close friends and their work overlaps, they're not identical in their perspective. No, they're all different. Yeah. And you really, ideally, if you've got time, read all three. Mm. Or even at a minimum, watch a long interview or lecture with all three. Mm. Even that would be a good place to start. But what there is now there is information presented in a way that can be absorbed in a way that you know, meaningful debates in a pub about the future of the world could be had by normal people by investing a couple of days in watching interviews. Absolutely. And what's the what should the goal be for our mission-oriented uh, capitalism, our political leaders to set us on the path for in the future, um, to give the great majority of people, if not everybody, the, uh, um, the means to have a... a, a, a a more fulfilling and more engaged, more secure life while restoring our natural environment and ensuring that what we do at the moment is not putting at risk the quality of life of future generations. If you could just put that in <laughs> two or three words mm. and put it on a T-shirt, I, I think we're not. I think we're not far away from the point where um, there a mass movement behind that. Well, I think the conscious capitalism movement has got the closest yet, and that is do well while doing good, or do good while doing well. It doesn't Sorry, break infinite get growth, though. Uh, do do good while doing well, absolutely. Mm. Uh, don't let uh, uh, don't let inter- internet billionaires steal your <laughs> slogans. Yeah, but the whole well. thing is, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, the guy from Whole Foods who came up with it, do good while doing well, he's yeah. probably a billionaire, and he's uh, an all right dude. Yeah, uh, well, it's not actually. I I don't believe there should be any billionaires. I'd be. Uh, no, I'm like. Uh, I'd be taxing plenty. Most of that back yeah. off him, but that's not his fault. No, it's it's just unhealthy as far as it's one of the problems that we have: the concentration of wealth and yeah. the fact that there are some people that do awfully well out of the system that we have at the moment. But I think there is a spreading understanding of the problems that we're faced with and that we have the solutions to these problems in our hands if only we would uh, if only we could enact them and I I, I, I don't know about politicians can't act b- before us I think the political system is a is, is, is a is a difficult problem but I think we're waiting for leadership. And I think yeah. that's what they know, and that's why they do nothing. That passes a pub test. Because they know, actually, we can just keep farting around. Because there is no challenge. Um, well, if yes. They're a typical decadent... No, they know, they know everyone that... They're, they're that a decadent possibly, elite. Yeah. Tri- they are typical of decadent elites mm. who used to have enough authority that no one wants to challenge it's them. It's funny that you could, almost, yeah, you could make that comparison to royalty in some sense. Yeah. Well, it's looking like late period Rome. Yeah. They, they turn up, they pretend to manage the joint and everything's going backwards. Well, let, let's end on a positive note, David. <laughs> <laughs> Over to you, David. <laughs> this is a great book. You should definitely read this yeah, book. As well, as it is a great book, book and yeah. you should definitely read it. Yeah. But the real thing is, don't just read this. Recognise that we need implementation. Yeah, and, and then read we're, <laughs> we're sitting here struggling to work out what the implementation is. Because, of course, what was proposed was David's Prime Minister, but how do we get Davis Prime Minister? Because no party's going to do it. And the Australian population aren't going to vote for it. So what we need is someone that's not me, who will be voted for by the Australian public, acceptable to an Australian political party, who will get on with it. And meanwhile, we just all have to push in vaguely the same direction in all our different ways. Yeah. Which is what... Uh, the book does really well. Yes. It pushes for, here's how to get better outcomes. Take it to the pub with you. 
<laughs> yeah, no, no more just sitting there looking at the I don't know sport. Yeah, sport. horse racing or something. I don't know. And get involved, everybody. Get involved. Yeah. It might be yeah. in a political party. It might be we've got an action group in Adelaide mm. that some of us are involved in. Sustainable Prosperity Action Group. There are all sorts of other ways of uh, getting involved, and I wouldn't be prescriptive. No, everyone's got to find their own way because it's what you're interested in, what you know, who you know, where it can align with your energy and your passion. You know, Angela Duckworth worked out in a book, Grit, if you can work out what people are both passionate and persistent about, that's the thing they should do because their likelihood of success if they've got both things in equal measure, it's pretty unlikely they'll fail when you have both. So find your thing where, you know, you're both passionate about it and willing to be persistent and the likelihood is you will add real value to it all right well thank you very much both of you gentlemen it's been a fantastic conversation thank you david thank you tim and thank, thank you Stephen. and thanks, thank david. you listen. thanks tim and thank you listeners hello listeners if you're enjoying our podcast please subscribe and like our facebook page search for blind insights with david Olney. also don't forget that we have merchandise Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out.